Yes, sweet. All right, welcome to episode two of the Rebel Health University podcast. So you had me last time, Will Harvey. This time I will be the host. You. And we got Tristan Enright, T-Dog in the hot seat. Welcome, my brother. Man, the seat is burning up. (laughs) (laughs) That's correct. Um, Thanks for having me. No worries, man. It's a a pleasure. Um, So... The whole thing about uh, these first two podcasts is for you to get to know us and our backgrounds and our stories um, so you can connect um, with us that way and you know where we're coming from. Um, Firstly though, I'd like to, um, with my uh, Aboriginal background, um, is just welcome you to country. Um, We're in the Gubby Gubby country, uh, which is on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. Um, and just to give respect to um, past and present ancestors um, and respect to the land. All right, now that we've done that, let's get started. Let's begin. Yeah. T-Dog. Yeah, man. What's your why, brother? (laughs) (laughs) We won't go there just yet. Um, So what we want to do is, uh, what's your story, bro? Where have you come from? Let us know. Let us know, Tristan Enright, as a little bubba to the man that you are today. (laughs) Yeah, right. Oh, wow. It feels like a big story, but uh, I guess probably my one of my earliest memories is when I was around about uh, maybe four or five years old, and I'm going into primary school, and uh, I've got my best mate Matthew Loft there with me, and we're in prep. And the teacher goes away for a minute, and she, but she hands us these newsletters before she goes away. And she goes, here, boys, hang on to these and um, hand them out one at a time to each, each kid in your class. And when I get back, we'll, we'll just go through the stuff and then you can take them to your parents. And I just remember us rolling them up together, making a bonbon and just pulling them <laughs> apart as hard as we can and breaking all of them. Yeah. Um, so me and him have been best buddies for a long time, and um, there's been a lot of a lot of personal growth um, and a lot of great moments that we've shared together. Because um, he's a really intelligent guy, he's a really athletic guy, and he's someone that I've always tried to uh, tried to live up to, to hang alongside, and someone that I've really enjoyed his time. Yeah. So uh, you'll be hearing a lot about me and a lot about Maddie Loft, I think, in this podcast. Oh, I love it, love it. So. Um... I'll give you from what I know about uh, Tristan. Yeah, give me an introduction. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I first met him, like uh, we said in the, before, in the gym. Um, I saw this. Well, actually, I probably, I saw him. I was driving along the. He lives quite close to me. You know, he, he did. Um, I was driving along and was walking down the street with his uh, top off, and I, and I was like, "Who's this freak?" And I'm like, oh yeah. And then um, a few weeks later, I um, bumped into him in the gym. We were both going to the same gym. And then we got chatting. And uh, our stories just aligned up. Uh, Tristan was a pretty good tennis player, I'm going to put it. Could have hit a tennis ball on a court. (laughs) My uh, tennis abilities, you know, I can hit the ball over the net, but uh, that's about it really. It's, uh, <laughs> cricket tennis. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Cricket tennis. Oh, is that what you call us? 
That's what we call you, man. Oh, guys, guys, they hit it, hit it on the on the back fence on the full. Yeah, <laughs> good at that. Um, and then, uh, yeah, we just got chatting and just got the same vision. Came together. Um, Tristan's very. He likes to go deep quick, so you'll find that uh, these conversations uh, with him is probably going to go deep pretty quickly, um, which I love. Um, he likes to just share his emotions, and for men, especially these days, and young boys, it's well. When we were growing up, I say these days. These days, it's been spoken about a lot more. But when we were growing up, it was um, very. You're a man. You got to stay strong. You don't cry, and you know you just crack on with it, and you bottle all these emotions up, and your body just starts telling you, and you don't realize how to, to deal with it. And um, from what Tristan told me, and what he's going to tell you, he's gone deep on himself to find out. Hang on, this is not right. Um, just because we're a man, I think we can feel, share love. You can hug another man without you know, any other intentions and stuff like that. And he's just a beautiful guy. Well, let's, well, let's start there with, um, with the emotional thing. And maybe this doesn't have to be a linear podcast because I'm a bit of a, bit of a loose unit. I like to go with the flow and bounce around. <laughs> so, uh, maybe we can start there. Like my dad, um, he was one of 11 and, um, his parents migrated, um, from, um, overseas um, his dad was Irish, Scottish, and his mum was from England, and they migrated over, and his dad worked um, as a wharfie, so he had to be a, a really tough guy. He was Catholic. They had, that's why they had 11 kids, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he was brought up in a, in a pretty tough environment where um, his dad had to be tough, you know, there wasn't a lot of uh, emotional energy coming from his old man. And, um, you know, because he was middle of the pack, middle of the 11 kids, he was sort of raised by, in a way, by his older siblings. And I think that, um, you know, some of that, some of that toughness and some of that um, having to hide his emotions carried on through his life and, um, and quite possibly was passed on to to me at a young age um, and he'll tell you himself that we were really fortunate that um, that he met my mum Robin and her dad was a plumber um, built pretty tough in that industry as well but there was something about Da how he was really connected emotionally and really connected with his heart space and his and his family and and he, you know, he was with Val, his wife, and they had two daughters. Yeah, that's your mum's dad. So that's my mum's yep. dad, yeah. And um, I think him being around three women all the time, he really had to connect with his feminine side. Yeah, yeah. So um, my dad really felt like um, my mum's father had an impact on him and it really softened my old man. And, you know, I think that's something that I, that's been so fortunate for me um, being the third link in the chain, I guess, um, from my two granddads is that I got a soft dad. I got a dad who was softened, who, um, had a heart and had to learn how to get in touch with his emotions Love it. and, and a grandpa 
who who was so gentle and loving and warm and you know would give you a, a strong bear hug and yeah. i still get his yeah. his tingles like he's hugging me right now yeah. uh, my dar we call him so um you know i think one of the most important roles of us as men and and you ask me what my why is and i think you know part of it is just to really connect with who we are as people and and feel you know i think there's this importance for men for women for all of us to really feel what's going on for us and and let that out because i think there's there's generations of of pain and suffering and that we've we've held stuff in because we haven't felt like we've been able to voice it or share it or yeah. cry about it oh definitely like there are scientific um Greg Braden or um, Bruce Lipton, um, both scientists who have shown that, you know, your emotions go back about seven generations. Um, like your stories get passed on mm. seven generations. So, you know, you, you are always going to be holding, like, like you said, like your, your grandpa's uh, emotions are going to come through. Yeah. Um, and then, and then, you know, and you think about that seven generations back. It's crazy, isn't it? That's crazy. My great, great grandpa, crazy. my great, great, great yeah, grandpa. Yeah. And you think about how tough they were back then, bro. <laughs> <laughs> they were pretty, uh, you know, times were harder. Um, you know, just it's just how life was. Yeah. And uh, now we're getting a bit softer. And, you know, time to open up and still be a warrior. But uh, you can be a gentle warrior, can't you? Yeah, and I think that's what's been about. That's what it's about. It's about um, working through some of those shadows and feeling those emotions, so that you can feel your own vulnerabilities. And when you become comfortable with your own vulnerabilities, there's a real, a real true strength that comes with that because you're okay to be picked on. It's okay when you get criticised. There's there's nothing to hide from. There's nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was, I was, and I still am in a, in a way a scared little boy, but I was a, a really scared little boy in, um, in primary school, um, because I was just trying to prove myself. I was trying to find out my place in the world. And I had this best friend that I just fucking loved and, and wanted to hang out with. We had so much fun, but also like he was constantly challenging me because he was number one on the on the timetables leaderboard, you know, and I was number two and we were constantly like trying to get faster at spitting out the answers yeah. so that we could be on top and we'd play bat tennis and I'd be better at him and we would do assignments and he would do better at me, but it'd be like an A plus for him and an A for me or a hundred percent for him and 98% for me. And, you know, then I'd beat him in bat tennis six, five and we were just constantly having these battles and there was something about that, um, that challenge that I loved. It was like I knew that he was bringing out the best in me, but yeah. I also really enjoyed his company. Yeah. And, and it was a real finding finding our way. Yeah. And um, when I went into high school, um, I kept him as a friend, but we went to different schools. And it was the first time I really felt lost in my life. Like I was year seven. I grew up in um, Yarraville in Melbourne in the western suburbs. And I went to high school and I didn't know anyone except this um, beautiful Vietnamese boy, Aunt Din, who was at my primary school, Wembley Primary School. 
um, who was really shy and really quiet and really didn't talk. And Warren Turner, who had like, he's probably one of the coolest human Waza. beings on the, on the planet, <laughs> Waza, because um, he was always a little bit dopey, a little bit geeky, but he was so comfortable in, about himself. Yeah. And um, I think people were almost, or I was almost a little bit uncomfortable hanging around with him because I was trying to be cool and trying to be important and trying to be like someone that people wanted to hang around with. And, you know, Waza was a little bit, a little bit dopey and a little bit geeky, but, um, yeah. you know, we ended up, we ended up becoming really good friends, um, yeah. me and Warren, but that was some of the battles that I started to have, yeah. you no, know, going into yeah, high school. Yeah, yeah. There, there we go. And lots of people have these, like, you know, I, I did as well, um, but let's unpack this a little bit. So I reckon this will resonate with a lot of people. Um, so you just mentioned, uh, trying to be cool and act like someone else and not be true to yourself is, uh, if I'm not on the right path here. But, um, you know, let's, let's dig into that. Just, um, why, why were you trying to be, why were you trying to be someone else? You know, why weren't you comfortable in your seat? At such a young age, don't forget, you're only, what, 13, 14? Yeah, look, yeah, 13, 14 years old. I think it's, it's yeah. pretty normal. We're trying to find our place in the world. And I guess, you know, as young as I was, you know, I felt like I had to have it worked out already. Like, um, something I haven't shared already is that from a really young age, I'll, I'll, t- I'll tell you something funny. Um, at about four or five years old, I was in the bath one night and, um, I, <laughs> and, um, uh, mum and dad were in the house in the kitchen and I've yelled out to mum and dad and I've said, when I grow up, I want to be a grandma. and they've hung a lot of shit on me about that but i think what where that comes back to is is that i really i really loved and admired my nan my grandma and you know she was so loving she was so gentle she had all the time in the world for for me and and she was so like okay with herself and um you know i think ultimately that's what i wanted for my life and then you know fast forward a couple of years later I decided that I wanted to be the best tennis player in the world. And then that became the thing that I wanted, to, that I latched onto. It was like, okay, I can't be a grandma. <laughs> I can't grow up to be a grandma. Everyone laughed at that. Yeah. All right, I'm going to be this tennis player. Yeah. And um, I latched onto that. And that was my way of um, being awesome in the world, being epic in the world, being good enough was to, was to be that. So from a young age, I formulated this vision of myself being a tennis player. And everything I did was about making that come true. And, um, I, you know, I think that as a 13, 14-year-old, I felt like I needed to have it worked out. And being a tennis player was one thing that I had worked out. It was like, right, my career's worked out. I am a tennis player. In school, I was still out of my comfort zone. I felt like I needed to be cool and important to have friends. I didn't really know how to have friends. Like I connected with Matty Locke. He was my best friend. He was probably one of my only friends yeah. in primary school. And I got to high school. I was like, I don't know how to make friends. Yeah. So the only thing I knew how to do was be the fucking best at everything and show off. Yeah. So that's what I did. I was the best at down ball. I kicked everyone's ass. They hated me. That's a yeah. cheat to get me out of King oh, really? in four square. <laughs> Man, down ball. That back down ball. I was a killer at down yeah. ball. 
um, we would go away to camp at Kangarooby in year seven. And I, I literally spent four hours of the day of like playtime yeah. beating everyone in table tennis yeah. because that's when I felt special. Like that's when I was in the spotlight. That's when people were looking at me and going, wow, and going, I want to beat him. I want to kick him off the table. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in, in school, in high school, I never really felt like I had any friends in year seven and year eight and year nine. I felt like I felt lost and like a loser. And um, I think having that facade of, of being good and having it all walked out, worked out and walking around with confidence was, was my protective shield to, um, you know, to not have to, yeah, to not look weak. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and as uh, T-Dog has just said that, it's that weakness and that male, that male perspective that you do need it all worked out, and it, it does. You know, you're a provider. It's just, it's, it's in your DNA. You're male, and you're a provider, and you're not weak, and you fucking make shit happen. Mm. And uh, and that's all at the ripe age of 13, 14. At 13, 14, I think, I think we're already feeling it. I've spoke yeah. to a lot of men. Yeah. Um, and there's already this inbuilt. Um, sense of yeah, needing to, needing to provide, needing to be good enough, needing to be important, needing to be smart and intelligent. Um, and, and I think that's why we we do goofy things in front of girls, and we're trying to get their attention. And... Yeah, yeah. All boys. <laughs> All boys. Yeah. yeah. Well, whoever you know. That's it. Um... So it really wasn't until uh, it wasn't until year nine or ten that. I really felt like I made um, made a friend, yeah. and it was um, it was a couple of boys, um, Nick and um, Bessim and Matt Camilleri, and um, they called themselves the Wog Boys, and they were funny boys, and they uh, they were just one hundred percent themselves. They were these goofy goofy dudes. They played soccer all day. They um, they were reasonably athletic. Um, they talked about chicks. They talked about cars. They talked about football. Um, we watched Rocky and would re, you know, laugh about lyrics. And it was like, it was the first time I could just joke around and be playful with someone and just be myself and not have to prove myself of how good I was and, you know, be talking about how great I was at tennis or, or this or that, you know. we I just got to be, I felt like a kid again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they were real, a real gift to my life. Yeah. In school. Yeah, that is awesome. And feel like a kid again at the age of fifteen or something. I already felt like so, so serious. Yeah. I'd already learned to be really fucking serious. Right. Well, let's uh, let's unpack that, man. <laughs> how, how did we get to there? How did we get? Because. Um, I don't know if you picked it up before, uh, team, but he, he said he needed to be special. Uh, special and he needed to be serious and costly. Put words in his mouth and I'll let him, him take it from here. So um, on this podcast, as you can see, it's, all, it's, a, it's a healing for the, the interviewer as well as um, you guys getting your little information. So we're just about to go into a big one, I think, with uh, T-Dog. <laughs> so we're digging deep. 
Um, so yeah, hang on to the ride. So special and serious, mate. Do you want to unpack that for us? Yeah, well, look, I've done a lot of work over the years, and um, I think at, as the years go by, um, sort of the unpack gets gets bigger and deeper, and um, you get a little bit more more comfortable and aware about about what was going on. I think for me, um, from a very young age, I realised that um, there was a a, a real um, financial kind of pressure, I guess, um, that my parents were under. Um, and, you know, I've had conversations with them about that and, you know, they take full responsibility for it. Um, but there was a real financial pressure um, at an early age. I don't know how early it was. Um, but I think that part of me felt like me being a professional tennis player was going to solve that problem. Yeah. For some reason, I felt like I was put on this earth to be the provider and and rescue my family from financial woes, yeah. like as if financial struggles were such a bad thing. Um, I actually think now it's it's one of the greatest gifts because it gets rid of the um, it gets rid of the the shit really and, and allows us to experience life as it is. But um, yeah, for some reason, I felt like I needed to to do that for our family. I felt like my being on this earth was causing so much financial stress for my parents because tennis was such an expensive sport. Yeah. And, and I felt like that was my burden to bear. Yeah. Which, which it wasn't, you know. And my mum and dad were, were so incredible. They gave me every ounce of their time and their energy. They gave me every dollar that they had um, and every dollar that they didn't have. And, um, and I just think, and they wouldn't change that for the world because they wanted to give me the, the best possible upbringing that they could and, and they absolutely did that. Yeah. But um, for some reason, yeah, I, I don't think I felt worthy of that. Yeah, beautiful, man. Beautiful. There's lots of, lo there's lots of little nuggets in here for uh, all you listeners. Um, so, with, um, let's unpack the, uh, not good enough. <laughs> You're only, how old are you? Yeah, so, look, uh, I'm not good enough for, for the majority of my life. You know, I'm thirty. I'm thirty-four now, and and I'm still crying about it. Um, but I think the difference between me now is that. Um, no, let's, say, let's take you back to the little the little kid. Yeah, yeah, we'll go there. Don't worry, we'll go there. But the difference between me now and and being a little boy, not good enough, is back then I didn't know that that was the emotion that I was feeling. Whereas now, I know that it's this, it's this habit pattern that's, that's come from a young age that, um, that's just replaying. And, it's, and it's, just, it's just coming up in different scenarios in my life, reminding me that, hang on, there's a little bit still here hanging around. Um, and now I get to let go of it a little bit more consciously and, um, and start to feel the success that is Tristan Enright. You know, all the 
start to look back on all of the hurdles that I've overcome and all the ways in which I am someone that I can look up to and, and, um, and I can value myself and appreciate myself. But back then, um, I didn't feel good enough as a young kid um, because I'd really put everyone else in my life on a pedestal and I'd put myself in the pit. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, what Dima, uh, when I was about 14, I, I went to my first John D. Martini seminar, 14, 15, 16, and, and I just took like, I remember I took about 15 pages of notes. It was like one of the first times I felt like anyone was speaking the truth about life. Yeah. Um, because it was John D. Martini sharing his story um, and his life and all the things that he's gone through. And, and I just felt so connected to that. Um, I'd read a lot of personal development books. I've been a, around some help, self-help industry. And, you know, he just spoke about you'll never, ever feel good enough if you're always putting yourself in the pit and putting everyone else up on a pedestal because you're looking at the light in them, you're looking at the greatness in them, you're looking at the goodness in them, and you're comparing that to the shit in you. Yeah. And that's truly how I felt. Yeah. Was that I was looking at myself as not good enough. I was looking at all the things, all the ways in which I wasn't good enough in my life. I'm 13 years old. I'm a loser at school. I haven't made it in tennis. Um, you know, um, I don't know if my life's going to work out. This, this is all at 13. This is at 13. Um, like, I'm a failure. Like, I, I'm trying to be the best tennis player in the world. And at 13 years old, um, I'm starting to compete in some national tennis tournaments. And I'm losing in, like, the first or second round. How the fuck am I going to be a professional tennis player, let alone be number one in the world, if I'm losing to these guys that are, like, 300 in Australia? Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's probably where the, the, the beginnings of the self-help industry really came through for me. It was John D. Martini, and it was my beautiful father who um, was staying up late, um, curious about how, how he can have his best life um, because I know that he's such a curious man to become the best version of himself, and, and he you know, got up, stayed up late and saw Tony Robbins on the late line yeah. selling his uh, seven days of personal power and bought the seven-day bonus pack as well. Ooh, yeah. And we had, we had 14, 15, 20 hours, whatever it was, of, um, you know, world-class self-help conversation. And, um, and finally, I thought, wow, this is a reason to believe in myself. You know, I've got I've got world-class self-help teachings. Let's make something of my life. This is my chance. Yeah. And I uh, just remember, kids, this is uh, at the age of 13, 14, 15. As you can probably tell, Tristan is an old soul. Um, you know, I was still fumbling around, kicking a footy at that age. Um... And I uh, wasn't looking into self-help. So you can just see the, the 
the knowledge and wisdom that he has. Like to be looking at that at that age is incredible. Um, yeah, kudos to you, man, for doing that. Um, do you think it had any detriment, or is it a good thing? I think it. I think it's a great thing. You know, I think. It's so cliche to say, but we're all on our own journey. And I think that one of the coolest things that I've been able to do is just look back on um, different, different shit, different good, different stuff in my life, different moments and times, and just and just look back and go, how was that good for me? Or, yeah. or how does that serve me? And that's probably what I learned through all that self-help study and investigation was was to see the good in it, see how it's been good for me and, you know, what great can come from that. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've been lucky to be able to work through some of this stuff and share some of this knowledge with so many people over the last 10, 15 years, even if I haven't been ready at the time to deal with it with on, on a personal level, Yep. Having those conversations and seeing other people go through it, sometimes that's really what gives me the strength to actually dig in a bit deeper myself. Yeah. You know, we don't always have to have it worked out. No. Yeah, no. That's, that's the key. <laughs> who's, who's, who's ever got it worked out? Man? Right. Well, if you think you got it worked out, uh, yeah, come uh, drop a message to us. Drop us a line yeah, and tell, we'll, tell yeah, us how you did it. We'll have a, we'll, you can come on the podcast and uh, we'll come about it. Um, yeah, sweet. So, you're into self-help. You're 13, 14, 15. Yeah, and, I'm, and I'll tell you another thing. I'm, I've dedicated my life to being the best tennis player in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. So, and I'm listening to Tony Robbins and he's telling me that you need, a, you need to know your purpose and you need to find your why and you need to dedicate your life to it. So, I've dedicated my life to being the best tennis player in the world and my mission statement goes something like um, my mission in life is to be the best tennis player in the world to inspire others to live up to their potential and um, grow to being the best self that they can be to serve the world in a greater way so that's my mission in life at 13 14 years old and so so I've got that and that is, that's where I'm heading. That's what's driving me. That's what I'm connecting to every single day. And then I'm facing all of these battles and all of these reasons and all of these, you know, because what happens in life is when you set a vision that's bigger than you, you get reminded of all the ways in which you're not there. Yeah. <laughs> and it, that's what I got at 13, 14 years old. I got all the reasons why I'm not good enough. And mind you, like, Girls don't want a bar of me. Girls aren't interested in me. So I'm looking around at all of my mates and all of my peers that are my age, yep. and they got girlfriends and they're kissing girls and they're getting with all of these girls. And um, and girls don't even look at me. Mind you, I don't have a second to even have a conversation with a girl, let alone <laughs> know what to do with one. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's no time for a girl anyway, but there's this inside part of me that sees other guys so comfortable with girls and I feel again like not good enough like a loser because I haven't got that part of my life worked out yeah. <laughs> so, so life's just giving you all of this all of these reminders of like yeah you are not your vision yet yeah you are not your mission yeah 
So uh, he's, he's got this amazing vision. Love it. You know? Um, but he's telling himself he's shit at tennis. He's, and he's not a good friend. Oh, not a good friend. No, sorry. Doesn't have any friends at school. Doesn't know how to make friends. And, uh, and then you're failing at trying to attract girls. Yeah, so basically all I'm doing is I'm an A student in school, except not quite in English, and I'm really in, uncomfortable in drama because you have to improvise, and I'm so in my head that I am so uncomfortable in myself that how the fuck can I improvise? Like, uh, I want to <laughs> be a freezer in drama and just wait for someone to just open the door and close the door. <laughs> I don't want to actually be a person. Take that bit of meat out of the freezer. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, these are these are some of the challenges, and the only place I feel really truly comfortable in my life is is with my family because they love me unconditionally, and I can be one hundred percent myself. Um, and with my best mate Maddie Loft, and with my like, I've got really good friends and cousins, like amazing friends and cousins. We um, I can't mention them because there's so many of them. So I've got these amazing anchors of love and connection where I can be myself. But I'm so aware of the areas in my life in which I can't be myself, and there was so, um, and I'm, I, the energy that I gave those areas um, was was so much that yeah, I, I felt like a loser, yeah. you know, because I felt like I had to be at all, I had I had to have it all worked out. Yeah. You know, it was later that I worked out that we have a sphere of comfort, and. You know, when we push out on our sphere of comfort, when we do uncomfortable things, those things all of a sudden slightly become a bit more comfortable. Yeah. And we do them a little bit more often and our sphere of comfort grows. So it was later that I worked out, oh, it's okay to, that I've got a sphere of comfort and there's a, you know, a bigger sphere of discomfort. It's okay. Like, that's normal. Yeah. I worked that out later. Yeah. But at, yeah. at 13, 14, I was like, no, no, I thought I had to be comfortable yeah. at everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So what's coming up, uh, the question I've got for you at the moment is, um, did you get to be a kid, teenager? Did you allow yourself to be a kid or a teenager and just explore and have fun? Yeah, I think I did, mate. I, I don't want to give the impression that I was this really serious kid all the time that never got to have fun. I, um, you know, I allude just briefly before to, to the friends and cousins I have and, you know, my dad was one of 11 and we we didn't get to connect with um, all of the cousins on a deep way because there was so many brothers and sisters. But my dad had um, his brother Kevin, his brother Martin and his brother Peter and their wives and their kids who we spent a considerable amount of time with. We'd go around to their house for dinner. We'd um, do a three-day Easter every year. We'd do a September holiday um, with um, Pete and Kevin and Julie and Kayleen and the kids. And, and those were just incredible times where I got to play. And, you know, um, September holidays, um, I'd sleep in the tent with my older cousin, Lee. Yeah. And um, he was just one of my most amazing young role models because his body was his temple and he was getting into the gym and he was into karate or kickboxing. I think it was kickboxing. Yeah. Um, and he was, yeah, we were just jamming together. Like, he was um, an amazing guitar player. 
um, and an amazing friend to me. And he just took me under his wing and he, and he loved me and he laughed at me and he told me stories and he had all the time in the world for me. Oh, beautiful. And um, I just remember these, these holidays away where we'd go to bed and, you know, he'd tell me stories about school and, and being a, you know, he was my grown up. He was my yeah. young grown up. Yeah. He'd tell me these fun stories. And before we went to bed, we'd do like a thousand push ups and a thousand sit ups because, you know, I wanted to have grouse abs. Yeah. <laughs> great. Um, and I got those grouse abs yeah. <laughs> at a really young age. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I've got him to thank for that. Yeah. And I got to be a kid, you know, we played Nintendo and we fucking rode bikes and we hammered around and we told stories and we laughed and um, my cousins, Haley and Siobhan on my mum's side and Hayden and, and we went away to Torquay with my nan and da on my mum's side, her, my grandpa and, and nan, my grandpa we called da and we'd go away to Torquay and we'd have these these weekends and these Christmas holidays yeah, down, down at the caravan yeah. and we'd laugh and I'd yeah. juggle and we'd, we'd boogie board and yeah. we'd play Scrabble and we had all of these fun occasions that, that, you know, I just got to be a kid and I got to have fun and, um, yeah, you know, mom and dad brought that opportunity for me to, to have fun and, and have that in my life. Um, but it was me who, who got out of balance as an adult. Um, and 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 forgot to prioritize um or just didn't know how to create that for myself you know from from 18 to really 30 um 32 um i i stopped bringing opportunities like that into my life and and i became more adult i became more serious and um and i and i created that for myself yeah and that's fucked up <laughs> it's out of his mouth. <laughs> That's a fucked up way to be. Yeah, yeah. Life is not meant to be so serious. It's not. <laughs> but you've got this you know, 15 year old who's got this massive. Let's go like from 15 to 18. So you, you, you've got this life mission. You're not quite hitting it yet. So let me tell you what's what's happening. I want to hear the nuggets in this, brother. So I dedicate my life to being the best tennis player in the world. Yeah. And I start playing more and more um, national tournaments. And I start traveling internationally as well, um, competing, you know, trying to get a, a junior ranking and, and make something of this mission. So I get my first uh, ranking and I'm somewhere like, 300, 400 in Australia, and great. Now I've got this this measurement, this way to measure my success um, that's tangible. So pretty much um, I start designing because mum and dad basically, they patted me on the back and encouraged me to be an adult and to chase my dreams. Anything that I did for myself to take responsibility of what I wanted to do with my life, yeah. they encouraged it. Yeah. So like they were like, okay, so... You can, you want to go and do these tournaments, go and design a schedule. So I'd design this schedule of, okay, we're going to um, these two tournaments in Victoria here. We're going to go to um, Adelaide for those two tournaments there. Then we're going to go to Queensland for those four tournaments there. And, you know, we'd set up 10 weeks of the year in which I was going to travel Australia um, with their money. <laughs> um, but that's what you do as a kid, right? Yeah. Um, but 
I created this for myself and then I create the training program that I'd have. So I would be spending hours and hours and hours at night researching how to get fit to be a tennis professional, um, what I needed to do. Um, so I'd map that out, I'd create the structure around that. And then basically I would be training 40 hours a week from 13, 14, 15 years old to become the best tennis player in the world and checking in at the end of every tournament, my rolling ranking to see how I was going. Was I getting any closer? And I would start to um, map out and record my own win-loss records for the year. Um, And I would have my dad at the back of the court marking my unforced errors and forced errors. Um, And we would review and analyze every detail we could of me and my athletic journey and um it's fucking amazing um to think that i was creating that for myself putting that structure around um and doing that for myself at a young age and it was so it's so amazing to that i had those parents who would would support me and you know my dad would and mum would come out on the tennis court when i didn't have enough hours of practice and and feed me balls for an hour for two hours um, and I'd crack the shits at them not feeding it to the right spot <laughs> and blame them for not being out because I couldn't hit the ball in the right spot. It was their fault for not feeding it in the, yeah, yeah. In the right way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that's, you know, that's what I was doing. And mum and dad would come back and they'd go, look, we don't have the budget to take you to Queensland, but maybe you can go to South Australia. And yep. um, okay, we can't fly there, but maybe we can drive there. Yeah. Um, and and that's what happened. So you know, as I as I started to play these tournaments and um, and, and grow um, in age, I was coming up a, a, against a real challenge with my body um, because I was just getting injured all the fucking time. Like I said, I was training forty hours a week. I was training forty hours a week. So um, at that age, I was playing three and a half hours or four hours per day of hitting tennis balls, seven days a week. Um, so that was 28 hours of running around the court like a maniac hitting balls. And um, then when I wasn't hitting balls, it was an hour and a half to two hours of fitness. So I was designing these agility and plyometric um, fitness schedules um, and running schedules to become faster to become more enduring so that the reason I was missing wasn't because I was tired and if it got to the third set because when I was 14 in the first round in, of my national tournament I beat this guy from Queensland someone McDonald Andrew McDonald or something <laughs> it was amazing how you remember all this shit um, so I beat him in this three-hour match seven six in the third and it was basically because I was fit enough and I wanted it more and I kept that fucking ball in the court. I didn't want to miss. Yeah. Um, so I learned from a young age the, you know, the great value that having a good tank, having a good engine and wanting it more had for you in your journey. Yeah. And, um, you know, at this stage, Leighton Hewitt, I think had busted onto the scene. Um, he'd beat Andre Agassi, yeah. won his first professional tournament and he was looking like being the next big thing. And, um, yeah, I was growing my hair long and wearing my hat backwards and yeah, 
you know, just about every young kid was yelling, <laughs> come on, and rubbing it in. Come on! <laughs> rubbing it in their opponent's face. So, so that was me, you know, 40 hours a week, let's be like Leighton Hewitt. Yeah, just smash them. Oh, we just dropped the uh, microphone. Sorry about that. We'll be we'll be back on. We'll be back on. Um, so a lot of things happened from there. Like a lot of challenges came because I was yeah I was working my absolute guts out yeah. trying to create this thing, like forcing this thing to happen when yeah. it wasn't. It wasn't really flowing. Hey, I was just saying, do you know what? My next question, and he's... <laughs> he shove over a bit. He's going... There's enough room on this rough boat. Oh, there's not. Um, Big tank. Which is going into my next uh, my next question, which you sort of touched on. He's, so he's, he's created all these programs. He's put all this structure in place, and he's just sticking to it and, and grinding and doing all the hard work. And... I was just about to go, how did you feel in that? Like, where was your flow state? Like, how did you allow yourself to be creative? Did you allow yourself to really show who T-Dog was? Or did it have to be, you wrote it down and that's how it had to be? Yeah, so I I wrote it down and that's how it had to be. Yeah. It was like, this, this is what I've created. This is the model me to be successful yeah. and um and i'm gonna follow that yeah and, and i never really thought i'm gonna follow it and learn from it i don't think <laughs> i just thought that if i wrote it it was right you know and learned it off the internet this is what you have to do and you know in spain what they were doing i think in spain when i was about 15 16 um there was this real spanish dominance coming through of professional players they had about 12 um professional players in the top 100 in the world. Um, There was like maybe another three or four from France. So we were getting all this information. I was training at the the Melbourne International Tennis School with Michael Barock um, and some of the best young um, tennis players in Victoria. And and they were running the most elite program for tennis players. And the information that we were getting was really that in Spain, those guys were training six hours a day of tennis um, and they were doing an hour of fitness a day and they were doing that six days a week and having a rest day on Sunday, maybe going for a long run on Sunday. And it was what they were doing was they were creating this model where you either were good enough and your body held up or you broke and you never made it. Um, And I never really considered that as a possibility for me because I'd set I'd basically decided I was gonna be the best so in my mind I was gonna be the best. Yeah. So when I was breaking I wasn't really aware that that was because of me, I was just blaming my body. You know, I wasn't really taking responsibility for me being the reason why I broke. Yeah. I was just hating on my body. Like fuck. My body is letting me down. I'd have um I was getting so many injuries. So from from fourteen to seventeen, yeah. From fourteen to nineteen, five years. Yeah. I worked out that I spent three and a half years injured. Like there was three and a half years worth of tournaments that I missed or that I played in injured. Yeah. But if you went a bit harder, it'd stop the injuries. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely going harder was the answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It usually is. 
Yeah. So, like, to sit back and relax and let your body recover was not an option, was it? Well, it, it wasn't an option. Because in Spain, if it was true or not, that's what they were doing. Well, yeah, if you were broken, you just got pushed aside. And, yeah. you know, I didn't want to get pushed aside. Um, yeah. Because that's not what life had in store for me. What, what life had in store for me was I was going to be number one in the world, motherfuckers. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And option A was to be number one in the world, and option B was to be number one in the world with my left hand if my right hand could do it. Yeah. That's what I told people, and I'm sure they laughed at me. And thought, you, you have no idea, kid. Yeah. You have no idea. I love it. He's this kid on a life's mission. And, uh... The backup mission was the mission. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, he was going flat out for it. Which, um, we all do, eh? I think we all do that, you know, yeah. one way or another, we think, in a sense that, um, well, maybe not all of us, but I think there's a lot of us out there that think that working harder is the answer. Yeah. You know, you, yeah, if you're, if you're an athlete inclined, whether it be at amateur level or um, the professional level, um, and, you're a, and you set your mind to it and you, you do have that athletic instinct that, you know, you, you are going to push yourself. You're going to push the boundaries and you want to do, you do anything to, to get to where you want to get, um, which is good, but you also need these wise elders to help you out, out along the, along the way. Which, um, I think it's, it can be the wise elders or it can just be that, you know, there's, there's just a part of you that reflects on your life and, and takes a look at it. There's definitely yeah. wide out, wise elders. There's been a lot of people that's influenced me in, in coming to my awareness. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think you, you got to be willing to have a look, and um, and you can't just you can't just work harder all the time and get there. You know, whether it is athletic endeavours or whether it is um, your career or whether it is your relationships, like just doing the same thing harder is not going to get you there all the time. Yeah. It's, it's one strategy, but it's just not the only strategy. Yeah. Um, but it was the strategy that, that I did for five years. Like uh, Albert Einstein said, the, um, the sign of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting this, um, a different result. And we all do it. Yep. You know, we're all, we're, we're all insane. <laughs> we are. I'll stick my hand up. <laughs> we're all insane. Yeah. Yeah. We are. And we all have insane moments. Um, but, you know, I think that we, we all have also the power to to stop and reflect and, and pull ourselves out of it. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I've been lucky. Mum and Dad, like I said, they did they did everything for me. They, anything that was, was possible that they could do for me to help, they would. And they took to physios, they took me to chiros, they took me to elbow specialists, and they took me to so many different um, people um, that would assess my body, assess me physically, and um, and try to bring about changes that would support me. And um, I had this, probably one of the most incredible physios I had was Natalie McCall. Um, she was the physio for the Melbourne store, and at this stage, I'm probably around about. I'm probably.
probably around about 18, I guess, 17, 18, yeah. 18, I, I think I'm driving there with my mum, either on my learners or, or on my fees or something. And um, where most physios back then were telling you to rest and rest wasn't working, like I would get injured, I would take two weeks off playing tennis to rest my elbow four weeks off playing tennis to rest my elbow and then go back to playing tennis and have a sore elbow, um, she wanted to look at the technique. She wanted to look at um, how efficient that was, whether or not I was holding tension or whether or not I was relaxed. She yep. wanted to look at um, other parts in my body that were weak. She didn't just look at the elbow. Yep. She was like, what's your wrist like? What's your shoulder like? How do you move? Yep. Tense, are you? Um, yeah. So she really opened up a new conversation um, for me at that age in terms of managing my injuries, which it was on a level of don't just go hard or don't just go completely soft. There's yeah. some middle ground in there yeah. where you can stay active, you can still do stuff, you can develop your body um, in other ways that can then support you to come back stronger. Yeah. And, um, and that was really cool. And, Obviously, I'm 17 now, so I've spent three years in the self-help industry. And really what drove me to, to stay and invest time in the self-help industry was that thought that I needed to be spending 40 hours a week um, to be the best tennis player in the world. Like, it takes 10,000 hours to become a professional at your sport. That's 1,000 hours every year. That's 40 hours a week over 50 weeks. Um, oh, geez, he's got this worked so out, hasn't he? Like, <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, it was like, like yeah. 20 hours a week over 50 weeks, sorry, but yeah. I was trying to like get there yeah. fast. Yeah. I was committing to 40 hours a week. So, yeah. you know, if, if what I could do was I could do two hours of fitness every day, seven days a week, 14 hours, but I couldn't play my tennis because I was fucking broken and injured. Yeah. All right, let's get in on the mind. Let's get in on the yoga. Let's get in on the stretching. Let's get in on the low-intensity cardio. So, you know, that's where these other areas became important to me. It was like, how can I bounce back from this injury and be at the same level everyone else's or be better? Yeah. And that was happening for me in a lot of ways. You know, I was able to keep with my pack of, of tennis players. I was able to keep at the level of my mates, even though I wasn't really playing anywhere near as much as them. Yeah. Because... I was coming back with these strategies of breathing that was heightening my awareness. Yeah. I was coming back with this um, this footwork and this intensity and this um, this almost this certainty that I could be good enough despite not having the time playing tennis. Yeah. And, and I was able to create beliefs and affirmations and, and strategies that allowed me to perform at my best despite not putting in the same amount of training as everyone else. Yeah. And they still serve me today. Perfect. Love it. Um, so, yeah. Tomorrow, <laughs> you... <laughs> You're 18. <laughs> I'm 18. You've just, you've... I'm a young lad at school. Yeah. Um, so, I'm just finishing school. Yeah, you're just finishing school. You've just figured out that you don't have to train 40 hours a week and you can play better tennis. I haven't figured that out yet. Just sounded like you figured it out. Okay, so I've worked out that. Okay, so I've worked out that there's other ways to get your. 40 oh, you're hours. still doing your forty hours. I still feel like 
Yeah. You, know, you have to work your guts out. Yeah. Do your forty hours to, to get there. Like. And how's how's that working for you? I was working no good. Yeah. Because I was because I was injured all the time. But you know what happened at, at eighteen and for those last couple of years in school after meeting um, Nick, Bessim uh, and Matt and creating this great friendship with those boys, they actually created a network of friends um, in which I could be myself and. And I really became comfortable in school oh, um, at that age to be around so many just just fun people. I, I just about would walk into school and high five everyone, and um, and felt like on, on a surface level at, at least that I had some amazing acquaintances who you know appreciated me for my humour and my playfulness and what I was good at, um, and I appreciated them for their smiles and their joy and, and who they were. Yeah. Um, so leaving school um, was really hard for me because um, all of a sudden, like, I didn't have a place where I could go to to meet friends, yeah. um, to see my friends. I didn't have, I think a lot of people probably feel this, but um, all of a sudden I'm waking up every morning with um, no other purpose other than tennis. Yeah. Um, I don't have any structure around seeing friends other than who I'm going to hit with yeah. um, that day. Yep. So I'm going to do fitness with that day. Yep. And I'm playing this sport where you're trying to be better than the person that you're training with at all times because you're trying to leapfrog the rankings. Yep. So really, um, unless I was organizing to see my mate Matty Locked or catch up with some mates from school, which yep. wasn't really happening yep. that often, unless yep. I was creating these opportunities for mum and dad had like, Okay, it's so-and-so's birthday, so we're going to hang out with your cousins. Um, let's say 95% of my week was me either being alone in my own thoughts of not being good enough of what I can create yeah. um, on my mission, yeah. um, or me being surrounded by my um, tennis players yeah. who want to be better than, be better than me, yeah. and I want to be better than them, so we won't have any connection any fun that was outside, I want to I want to kick your ass. Yeah, and yeah. I'm training with these guys that are like, they're calling you cheats, they're calling you hooks. They'd say to people on the tennis court in a match. Yeah. Like I was playing with guys that, you know, this guy, um, Jason Garcia, who was nice to my face, but on the tennis court, he was an absolute sea bomb. He was um, just... Throwing it all out there to beat me in that match, yeah. And, and I couldn't understand that as a young kid because, to me, it was it was a friend. Um, we, we were both serving each other's needs to grow somewhere, even yeah. though I wanted to be better than him. Yeah. Um, and beat him in every set that we played. Um, when we were out there, yeah, I was I was a useless cunt, and how can I be losing to this cunt? Or, you know. You should be beating this fucking weak idiot. And yeah. I'm hearing him say that, and, and it was working. You know, it was his strategy to get in my mind. Oh, that's what he was saying to that's me. That's what he was saying to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I and, thought that was um, it, yeah. You know, and I was brought up, yeah, not to swear and not to say anything bad about anyone. And, you know, I probably struggle with both of those things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I'm okay with, with, with swearing, and, and I'll do my best not to not to hang shit on anyone. I've got a potty mouth. Because that just comes back to you, eh? Yeah. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, that's, 
was surrounded by quite a few people that were that were nasty. Yeah. Yeah. And abusive to me yeah. on the tennis court. Yeah. And I didn't have the strategies or tools to not take that on as true. Yeah. I was taking that on. And um oh, yeah. and that was really affecting me. Yeah. Yeah. And then he'd be nice to me afterwards after the match. Well, I just didn't Beaver. know how to separate that either. Like yeah. I just couldn't make sense of that. Yeah. And um, you know, that's nothing against him. That was just that was probably something that he learned from his coach and, and yeah. that worked. Well I I'm gonna I can see where he's coming from. I had the old white line fever. As soon as I crossed that uh, white line, it was game on. Yep. It didn't matter who it was across the other side from me. It was, I'm going to hurt you, or this in footy or whatever. Yep. But as soon as that whistle went to the end of the game, sweet. So, yeah, best mate. <laughs> but I, 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 yeah, I had that instinct, which you can't. Um, whereas as soon as I crossed that line, yeah, it was, it was game on. So I don't know where it came from. Yeah, I guess I had that, but I had it brought up. I had a, um, I had it with a set of rules. Yeah. And the rules for me were that you go out there when you get onto that tennis court when you close that game. Yeah. You're there to win. Everything you do is to win. Yeah. But it was never don't lie, don't cheat, don't swear, yeah. don't hurt. Um, it was. Yeah, it's great value. It's great value to have. Um, so I just want to, you just mentioned something, I don't know if you picked up on it, you've just, you finished school and you said, finally, you know, you felt confident, you were high-fiving people when you went to school, they got your humour, you were having play. Yeah, I was having so much fun. Then you left. I want to know, where, where, where'd you play? Where was your fun? Yeah, like I said, it was really, um, it was only the random times when um, I caught up with my best mate, Matty Loft, and we'd, yeah. we'd play video games or yeah. pool or, um, you know, we'd, we'd go do stuff. We'd just play. We'd ride bikes and throw frisbees yeah. and create fucking mini golf courses and whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, have hit tennis balls and, um, you know, as much as there was, there was still this little bit of competition between us and we had to be better than each other. You know, there was so much joy in it together. Yeah. There was always so much play. Yeah. Um, yeah. We had the we had the best time together. Or it was when um, play was organised for me. I'd see my cousins, or I'd see my family friends, or yeah. you know, it'd be birthdays or Easter or Christmas, or mum and dad would have you know, or I'd go around and that and that, or I'd play with my sister. I played quite a lot with my sister. We do. Um, dance concerts and, and all sorts of stuff, but probably oh, not it. so much when when I was eighteen. By yeah. eighteen, yeah, she was twenty one. Yeah. Um, she was, you know, she was doing her thing in the world, and, and I was doing my thing in the world, and um, we really didn't spend as much time together connecting um, in a in a real playful way at that age. Um, she was, you know, sleeping in. Looking forward to partying and seeing her mates. Yeah. I was so deep in tennis and so focused on that that I wasn't really there for her um, as a brother and a friend in the same way. Um, we, we share beautiful values and we, we love each other to death, but um, I guess we just weren't in each other's lives um, as much in that support way. Like, yeah. you know, we're figuring our lives out. Yeah, which you do, isn't it? Yeah. But we still... Yeah, we had a we had a beautiful relationship. Yeah. Um, she was the first person if I 
phone. Um, asked this girl out, she already had a boyfriend. I got the signals all wrong. I was in love with her. Um, and I told my sister, and you know, I cried in her arms for ages. She was, she was one of my best friends. She'll always be one of my best friends. Yeah. Um, I just, um, I got, the questions come up. That's amazing. Play, yeah, play yeah. was just not, I didn't create it yeah. really that often myself. Yeah. So, I'm just going to use, I knew in my experience, when I was mucking around, joking in the change rooms before a game of footy, yeah. I went out and played my best best footy. Yeah. The coaches didn't like it. Yeah. I was still in that era where it was still, you had to be focused. Um, and if I did fight, uh, muck around like that, they thought I wasn't switched on yeah um whenever i became more focused on what i had to do and got more i usually played worse yeah did you yourself allow yourself to have fun on the tennis court and express yourself on the <laughs> tennis court and be flowing and free and flamboyant no. high-fiving and no 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 fun <laughs> no, no. no, it was about serious. It was about creating an outcome, creating a result, being 100% present. Like, I don't know if you saw Leighton Hewitt play, but I idolised Leighton Hewitt. I didn't idolise some of the more playful, flamboyant players. Moncrease? Like, yeah, Cal Moncrease. I mean, he probably wasn't around back then, but yeah, if you go back a bit, <laughs> a bit um, earlier, maybe, uh, oh, God, Marat Sapin. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, um, yeah. these guys yeah, had so much talent, and when they were on, they were so on, and no one could touch them. Yeah. When they were off, they were off. Um, yeah, no, there was, uh, I didn't, I wasn't able to have fun. And, you know, the way that that probably showed up for me was that because there was no creativity and joy necessarily on the tennis court, yep. um, it was you get your result and then you celebrate winning like you can have fun once you've won. Um, but if you didn't win, then that's, that's not good enough. It was all about win or lose. So when I was out there, there was this there was this desire for creativity in me that yep. was trying to come out. And the way it would come out was dumb shots, dumb shot selection. Like I would try to do a slice every rally, a drop shot every rally, a lob. I would be trying to do all this creative shit. Serve and I would be one meter inside the baseline trying to crack a winner. I would be really serious about it, really intense, really focused, and, and sometimes I could pull it off. But really, that wasn't the percentage shot to do. Yeah. So, um, you know, the way that creativity came through in me was was dumb shit, and it would have been much more, um, much more fun and much more productive. I would have been a much better tennis player which I was later on, yeah. once I worked out how to have fun and relax. Um, yeah, when I became about 19, 20, 21, I started drinking. I, in my mind, I'd given up tennis. And um, I just, I trained one and a half hours a week with um, my coach, Steve Blundell, at that time. Um, he taught me how to be relaxed. He taught me how to um, make better shot selection. Like, we literally said to me, when you're behind the baseline, you hit it cross court. When you're in front of the baseline, you hit it down the line. When you get a few meters inside the baseline, you take an angle and follow that angle to the net. And he just had, he 
just simplified the game for me so much. Yeah. Taught me how to relax. And all we worked on was being loose <laughs> and letting go. Yeah, and boy. all of a sudden, like I played my best tennis, I started beating guys that were um, number one in the state in Victoria, um, you know, top ten in the state in Victoria. Yeah. Um, I started beating guys that were top 500 in the world. Um, I was still losing matches, but I was showing signs of um, just real potential. Yeah. And, um, and that's probably when I started taking it seriously again. Um, and really had that battle all over again. And, um, and my life my life really changed from the years of 19 to 22. Yeah. Because um, it was a time when I decided that, fuck um, this, I'm, I'm not going to take my tennis so seriously. Yeah. I don't want to be alone traveling the world alone. Losing and finding my way to be the, to be the best over the next five years. You know, basically, um, it takes time to go from 500 in the world to number one in the world. Yeah. It, it takes years and years of development. And I got my first taste of um, being realistic, and I realised that hey, I'm not. I don't have a professional ranking. I don't have a ranking of a thousand in the world. What guys were doing that were at my level was going to Bulgaria, Romania, paying a thousand bucks for guys to forfeit the match so oh. over and over again so that they could get their one professional point and then bringing it back to Australia because there weren't enough professional tournaments in Australia. Yeah. There weren't enough tournaments that were big enough draws for guys like me to even get an opportunity to qualify. So you, yeah. you would rock up to these tournaments in New South Wales and Queensland. Yeah. And because you didn't have a ranking, you weren't actually even in the draw because it wasn't big enough for you to even have the opportunity to beat anyone to get to the point where you could earn a point. Yeah. So guys were just like, all right, well, fuck this. I'm going to Bulgaria. Yeah. I'll pay someone who needs money a thousand bucks, forfeit my way, get a point, and guarantee myself entry into these draws. So, um, you know, that's what those guys were doing. I wasn't doing that. I was aware that I was not ranked in the top 1,000 in the world, I had a journey of years to get to 500, another year to get to 400, another year to get to 300. I had so much development that I needed to have. Meanwhile, Leighton Hewitt's number one, Raphael Nadal's first under the scene, he's yeah. 300 times better than me, and he's my age. Yeah. Um, how the hell am I ever going to compete with that guy? I'm yeah. Roger Federer, he's the most yeah. talented player I've ever seen. And then you got... Realistically, I'm not going to make it. You got Novak Djokovic bloody coming. You got Andy Murray. We didn't know Novak back then. No, but, he um, wasn't there. Thank God I wasn't still trying. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't going to make it, you know. Yeah. And, and I had that, yeah. thankfully, I had that realisation at a young age that, you know, what I dedicated my life to probably wasn't wasn't going to happen. Yeah. And, um, wow. So what what age was that? So that was around, that was around 19, 20, 21, where that was all sort of yeah. coming together. Yeah. You know, was, the seeds were really starting to plant and I was starting to see the flower. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also notice all the weeds that I created. Um, so, you know, I realised that at this stage, what I really wanted for my life was a bit greater than being the best in the world. Like, yeah, boy. I'd been doing Tony Robbins and he'd been talking to me about um, relationships and he'd been talking to me about career and he'd been talking to me about family and he'd been talking to me about values and on a whole different level and fun and 
having a juicy life. Yeah. And, and I started to think, fuck, man, I, I don't have a juicy life. I, I want to go out. I want to party. I want to get into the nightclubs. I want to have some fun. You know, all of this stuff that I've been denying in my life, yeah. I wanted to go there and experience it. Yeah. And, um, yeah, my cousin Siobhan, she was um, my age. We gelled so much. She was going out partying. And um, I started dating um, at my cousin Haley's birthday, I think it was. Um, I met this girl, Simone. And Simone was good friends with my cousin Siobhan. And me and her started dating. We kissed. She was like one of my first kisses. Um, so, like, I think I was like 18 years old or maybe 19 years old. And I yeah. met my first one of my first kisses, I kissed some other girls. It was kind of organized in the model club. Um, <laughs> so I felt really like, um, I, uh, I felt like I was 14 in a 19-year-old yeah. body. I was yeah. trying to work out this whole girl thing at 19. What a loser. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I told myself. But I'm, I'm trying to figure this out for this girl, Simone. And it was kind of the first time where um, I felt like, holy shit, like, this girl likes me. Yeah. And I'm sexy. I can see myself being sexy and attractive. And, um, you know, when that relationship ended, um, and, and I didn't do it in the most sensitive way, um, so I'm sorry for that. But when that relationship ended, like, it was almost like a freeing of myself. Like, I, for the first time, felt attractive to the opposite sex. And, wow, wow. there's something attractive about me. So, Love it, man. Love you know, I got to go out clubbing and... Yeah. I just look a girl in the eyes from the other side of the room within the first 10 minutes and kiss her, uh, walk up to her and make out with her yeah. for like 10 minutes and then go back to my mates and brag about it. And yeah. all of a sudden, you know, this, this fucking animal inside me yeah. that wanted to, that was, you know, showing off about being the best tennis player, yeah. showing off about being so good at down ball and showing off your <laughs> yeah. Now this fucking animal was showing off about yeah. how attractive I am. What clubs were you going to? We would have been, we been in the bloody... So we were going out to billboards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. CQ. Yeah, I was going to one bar in Moody Ponds. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that was basically the main one. Occasionally I was going out to, a bit later on, when I met my wife, we were going out to Hawthorne in the eastern suburbs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, mostly mostly in the city. was where I was working my magic. Yeah, I was in St Kilda. <laughs> so we probably went across the path. I did a little bit in Kilda. We've gone across paths back much. then. Imagine, yeah. Yeah. Imagine that. Eh? Yeah, yeah. So, there um, you go. yeah, the whole girl thing was a whole nother, a whole nother, a whole nother side of the story. I fighting for a year and a half or so, and um, I dug deep with, with the Tony Robbins stuff on relationships. And one of the coolest exercises I ever did was I write down what my ideal partner was and yeah. what I wanted in a, in a soulmate. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's when I met my wife, Jill. Look at that. Yeah, I, I probably did the similar thing. Did you? Yeah, I got told that. It wasn't, I don't think it was through Tony Robbins, but um, I think they might have got it from Tony Robbins. But just really describing who you want, yeah. writing it down, and um, just letting it happen. Yeah, I don't know what age it was, but I wrote down all this, you know, really superficial stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't want to go up and choose partly. I don't want to partner with whatever it was. I can't remember. But yeah. Was, um, yeah, I don't want anyone who's ugly. I don't want anyone who 
smoke, so I don't want anyone who's unhealthy, who's boring, who can't cook, all of this stuff. And then through writing that stuff down, it was like, okay, then write the opposite of that, and that's what you do want. Because I didn't know what I wanted. So then, okay, I want somebody attractive and sexy and playful and fun and who cooks and this and that. And then, yeah, I was out of this nightclub famous and... I was on the podium dancing, and this girl came up to kick me off, and she had no luck doing that. And that's my wife. We've been together for, yeah, since 2000, March 2016. We got our five-year anniversary last year. We're coming up at six, and um, it was like it was like I just knew very, very quickly. Oh, right, so you got married. Time. You got married in. We got married in 2016. 2016. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how old were you when you met her? Yeah. Uh, how old was I when I met her? I was like 20. So yeah. I, was, I think I was 19 and like within, we met in March. Yeah. On the 24th of March. Um, so by this, on the 6th of April, I think I was away at Easter for my birthday. And like, I was like, I was all over heels with her. She was fun. She was playful. She she looked me in the eyes, she was interested in me, she, she was so into me, and I was just so into her, she was just, just energetic, and herself, and knew how to laugh at herself, and the mood is jammed, I couldn't get enough of it, and, um, yeah, April 6th, I, it was only two weeks since I met her, I'd probably haven't seen her three times, and, and I just missed her hard, yeah. just calling her from. <laughs> Easter holidays. Yeah. Um, I wanted to be with her. And I got back the next week, and you know, she missed my birthday because of my birthday over Easter. Yeah. And she made me um, chocolate chip cookies. She didn't know it was my favorite. She bought me Ferrero Rocher. Uh, she she knew yeah. and Rochello um, chocolates. Got him. Got him. Straight through. Have that rock there helping you out, supporting you through it. 
And then um, usually you reciprocate the uh, the um, well. If it's true love, you will reciprocate and help that person out as well. Yeah, it's a uh, working in harmony. Yeah, yeah, you did, did didn't you? Yes. We did a lot of things that really upset and hurt the other person in, in our early days, and yeah. um, we just we we worked out how to how to care and how to be respectful for for the other person, and and how to grow this relationship over the years through through fucking up, yeah, and through realizing that. It's better, we're better off letting go of that fuck up because we want each other and want to shit more than we care about, you know, whatever happens. Yeah, love it, man. Love it. Um, so you've gone from a tennis player to fine, <laughs> from fine in love. Yeah. Tennis player to finding, finding true love. Yep. And, um, Where, where's your and then realizing, and then realizing that, yeah, like, life. Where's life taking you? Where, like career-wise? Yeah, I guess I'm, you know... How'd um, you get into what you're doing now? I didn't really know what to do, eh? Like, I always thought that I was going to be in terms where I'd never work a day in my life. Um, <laughs> and, and, <laughs> you know he was doing 40 hours of training a week. It never, it never felt like no, work. It doesn't. Um, even though I took it seriously, it didn't feel like work. It felt like... What was what I was meant to be doing? Um, yeah, yeah. Once I pushed that aside, I did a few jobs. I did food packaging. Um, I did art school care. I did tennis coaching. I fucking hated all that shit. Yeah. That that was not me at yeah. all. And then I got this job um, at Sports Power in Williamstown, working for Perry and Rosemary Blackney, and um, there was a little family business, and they cared about me. And, um, taught me a lot of life lessons and um, Perry taught me how to sell and Rosemary taught me how to sell and um, I guess from that point of view um, I, in that in that store and in that moment uh, every day working I learned how to have a conversation with another person a real conversation how to get to know that person and what mattered to them in their life, and then what they came in for, what they needed, and then how to sell to their values, how yeah. to sell. Like, they weren't coming in to buy a shoe. They weren't coming in to buy an item of clothing. They were coming in to shop because they didn't feel pretty enough, or they felt not so special, or they felt like um, their foot injury um, was because of their old pair of shoes and they needed to care for themselves and buy themselves a few cushiony. Yeah. So it was like getting to know what was going on for them in their life, yeah. getting them a product that was going to make them feel good, and then grabbing other products as well that would make them feel even better, yeah. and giving them a really big, fucking, really fun, cool experience. Yeah. Knowing them, knowing their family, knowing their kids, yeah. and letting them walk away with 500 bucks or 1,000 bucks worth of product. Fucking nailed it. <laughs> That is called material <laughs> selling. You try and make yourself feel better. But also, like, creating relationships with these people was fun. Like, they got to know they, they got to know me. I got yeah. to know them. We were talking about my tennis, my parents, uh, my wife. Some of them would spend an hour in the store. You 
do. Some of them would come in with a coffee and a muffin, and we'd sit down and we'd chew the fat, and then they'd walk out with a thousand bucks worth of stuff. And you know, it was it was probably then, in hindsight, where I learned how to um, how to just connect with another human being, but also um, sell at the same time. Yeah, nice. Uh, how to give people what they need, but also have a great experience doing it. Yeah. Right. And I was brought up with, like I said, my dad was one of 11, and my mum, I didn't say that she had an older sister, Rhonda, but I said that we had a lot of cousins on that side as well. Cousins on that side as well. Um, but yeah, I was brought up with a lot of adult company, and yeah. I really loved the adult company. Like, I was the kid who um, sat at the Enright table with the adults. Yeah. For the longest time, like I enjoyed that company. Yeah, I yeah. When you when you're 13 and um, looking into self help, yeah, you're definitely gonna be doing that. Aren't you? <laughs> yeah, that's good, man. So you you you've learned to sell, you've learned to connect, and start tapping into people's emotions. So when did you decide that you wanted to get into the health and fitness industry? I guess that was my first blend of it, really, wasn't yeah. it? Because it was, that was the first time I felt at home. It was the first time I felt really connected to my values. When I was, um, that was a really positive, self-observing um, and growing experience working there because I was surrounded by these beautiful people that had great values um, that, that felt like family. Um, I was around a sporting athletic environment where yeah. I could get um, the latest athlete Asics running shoes and I could talk all day about my training and their training and my fitness and their fitness yeah. and shoes and clothing and sponsorships and uh, I was able to create a Yonex sponsorship for myself or continue that sponsorship um, even though I wasn't playing tennis yeah. just because we could sell Yonex tennis rackets to people in the store and um, it, it was just a really fun blend of sports and sales. It was the yeah. first time where I felt like I was doing a job that didn't feel like a job yeah. after tennis. Um, so I, I evolved through that into um, becoming like the equipment manager for them, starting to feel a sense of importance in that in that business. Um, I got into, um, they opened up this store called Contagious, which was a fashion store. Um, so I put my hand up to run that and they trusted me and, you know, unfortunately with that, a couple of things happened, um, probably personally and professionally for me. There was not enough foot traffic for that store where it was placed in Caroline Springs. Um, there was no one really walking. There was a lot of drive-by, but the parking was on the other side of the building, so there wasn't a lot of walk-through traffic. So I'm sitting in this menswear, um, not menswear, this fashion store. Um, as a male manager, I'm making a few decisions about getting in some, some staff to support me. I'm able to do some buying and choose the fashion for the store. And I'm learning off this professional buyer, Gail, who'd done it successfully at Williamstown um, for many, many years. And she's teaching me all the ropes and I'm getting a real feel for it. And, I, and I'm meeting the reps. And I can really feel this being a, a good pathway for me. Like it really feels fun. Playful and creative, creative. And fashion. Very fashion creative. And, yeah. and I have this love for fashion. My mum has worked in a fashion store for you know the most part of her life. So I grew up around 
and, and mom and dad always wanted me to look good. Maybe it was mom who always wanted, wanted me to look good. Yeah. So I have this passion for fashion. <laughs> Part of rhyme. So I'm really loving this, but I'm not successful in this endeavor because there's not enough foot traffic. Um, and we get to this desperate point where after six months, we have to do this fashion parade, try and get some more attention. Otherwise, they've got to close down that leg of the business. Yeah, yeah. And um, I didn't really know how to do this fashion show. Um, I didn't really feel supported as well as I needed to be. I still felt felt like I was out of my depth. Yeah. But I felt like there was an expectation from them for me to have my shit figured out in that area and run this really cool fashion show that was a success. Yeah. And I just didn't feel up to it already. Yeah. And, you know, right at the last minute before it, I pulled out. Um, and I told him I can't do it. And I told him, I think I said I can't work here anymore. And I just, I literally just pulled myself completely away yeah. from, from their business and, and stopped helping them. Yeah. And um, that was the real second time in my life where I felt like a failure all over again. Because... When I gave up tennis, I really felt like a failure. Like I really, I hadn't made it. Like I told the whole world, my whole world, that this is who I am. This is what I'm going to be. I'm going to make this happen. And then I wasn't good enough. It was the first reality check um, that I'm not in control. And then all over again, I had that. Yeah. You know, there was there was some depression that came with that. Yeah. And yeah, it's definitely. Because, you know, then all of a sudden I'm not working again. I'm alone. I've let down people that are really fucking important to me. Yeah. And, 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 I'm, and I'm lost. Yeah, we've... And I don't really know what to do, hey? Yeah, we've all been there, eh? And it's how you dig yourself out of those trenches, man. Yeah, so I think... I think it took me a while... Um, but from there, I, I looked at glue, um, I looked for a job. Oh, glue. Glue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 we've yeah. had a different life. We've had a similar life. I haven't, I haven't been sipping glue, though. That's just what I like. <laughs> he just said he found glue, so oh, it's like, I like to have, I like to joke, so, you yeah. know. You've had glue, you've had glue, whatever. <laughs> I started looking for a job in fashion because I have this yep. manager experience. I feel like I've got this, um, you know, I feel like people can trust me because I've got drive, I've got discipline, and there's lots of reasons to hire me. So very quickly, I have an interview with Blue, and I've become the men's wear manager. Very, very quickly. And they say within six months, we're going to promote you to the store manager because we want to get the store manager up into head office. So I go in, pull it again, start um, trying to learn the ropes, be a good example. I'm fucking kicking ass in sales. Even though this is like the best performing, performing store in Victoria, um, I go in and all of a sudden, like the menswear um, department is going like gangbusters. Yeah. Um, and it's making more than two thirds of the whole store's money. Huh. And the menswear. Um, you got a natural gift, right? 
Yeah, what was happening was they didn't really take to me that quickly. I had to give my sales, anything I sold, I had to give to the register. The register was putting it through. And after about a month or two, I realized that when I was looking at the sales at the end of the day, that even though 80% of the sales or the stock that was going to the desk to be sold under my name, um, it was just a beautiful even spread and everyone was getting the same amount of sales. Yeah. And I felt way more important than that. Um, I felt like I was doing more. Yeah. And that I deserved to be honored for that by putting it under my name. Yeah. Um, why the fuck wasn't that happening? And um, then also over the months that went by, I would speak to the manager and um, I'd be like, why, why am I the menswear manager but I don't know how to use the register yet? Like, I'm literally meeting these people, having these conversations, taking a thousand bucks, two thousand bucks worth of stuff up to the desk. No one's on the register because they're out the back checking for something or doing something else, helping someone else. And I can't follow through and give these people the experience they deserve yeah. by just making the transaction and saying, have an awesome day. Yeah. I'm saying, just wait at the register for one of our team to help you. I can't actually do that. I don't know how to do it. Yeah. How embarrassing and stupid is that? Yeah. So more and more occasions like this happen over a six-month window. I'm more and more frustrated that I don't see a future at this company. And um, yeah, a whole chain of events happen, and I feel really depressed and anxious actually going to work. I hand in my resignation and leave. Yep. And um, I have this this um, this desperate feeling of not knowing where I'm going and only knowing that I'm good at managing um, managing clothing stores and sales. Yeah. So I reach back out to Rosemary and Perry. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and that was cool because um, Rosemary was like, she was really worried about me because I just left them in the lurch. Yeah. And, and I don't think she wanted that again. And... Um, you know, she took the time to go for a walk with me around Williamstown. We spent an hour and a half chatting and, and sharing and talking about the hardship of that business um, that they went through when, while I was there, but also after I was there. And I got to talk through uh, my emotional challenges of what I felt like being a failure and letting them down. And I was able to step back into that business um, not right at the top again. They yeah. just gave me what they had available and, and worked my way up and earned their respect again yeah. and, um, and be part of that with them, which awesome. was so cool. Yeah. And that, and that uh, takes a lot of courage to go back there and, and do that. And, um, you know, because you did feel like you let them down and, and you left it. And you just walked away and then you had to go back there with your, you know, your tails between your legs and say, hey, you know, which is... Hey, I fucked up. Yeah. And, and, that, and a lot of people don't do that. They don't take responsibility for their fuck-ups. Um, but it's what we need to do, you know. And I've done it a lot in my life because I've screwed up a lot in my life, but I think we all do. But yeah. I think it's also like... One of the coolest memories that comes up for me right now is like, um, and I love my dad so much. Um, I reckon my dad is like one of the strongest, um, most vulnerable um, 
examples of manhood going around because he did have such a tough upbringing with his father who was so unemotionally available yeah. to get from where he was to where he is. Yeah. I just admire him so much. Um, but I remember as a kid having arguments with my dad um, where for sure I was in the wrong. Um, and I would go to bed crying and upset and frustrated and I would hear like 15 minutes later my mum and dad at the other end of the house and my mum would say like, John, go and apologise to Tristan. Like, just, just do it. Like, you'll, you'll both feel better for it. Just make the effort. Come on. And, you know, mum and dad would have this little bit of a back and forth and then he'd go, okay, you're right. I'll go and, I'll go and apologise. Yeah. And then I would hear him come up and, and then he would apologise and we would feel better for it. And I always knew intellectually that mum had made him do it. That, yeah. like, mum was the wise, soft owl, the, yeah. the healer, the, the peacekeeper. But it's only later in life that I realised how amazingly courageous um, and, and vulnerable and big it was of my dad so many times over and over and over again to put his being right aside yeah. <laughs> and put the relationship first. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's amazing. So I just admire him so uh, yeah. much for the, you know, the amount of times he's done that. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And that's I take strength core, from that. Core values there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah I've been blessed to have a dad that, that can do that. Yeah, that's beautiful. Right, so yeah. Uh, when did you, um... So after this blue thing, I get into, um, I get back into sports power. Yeah. And then after this sports power thing ends, because, um, that's not really inspiring enough for me. Yeah. Like, I need more in my life. Yeah. And, um, I sort of realized that, um, I, I need something more and personal training comes up as an idea and it feels right. Like, it immediately feels right. And I tell my mum and dad, I'm going to be a personal trainer. I'm signed up at the Shane Institute of Fitness. Oh, that's right. I'm on. <laughs> and I'm buying a laptop yeah. uh, in two weeks' time because yeah. I need it for my course. Yeah. My mum and dad are like, what the hell? Like, you do it in Richmond? Um, I did it online. Online, yeah. Um, so, yeah. Mum and dad are like, what the hell? Like, yeah. You go from... You just made that decision so fast and you're doing it. Yeah. yeah. And it was the first time in my life, I think, um, again, where I felt like I really had certainty. Like playing tennis, I really had certainty around Yeah. This, I just knew that like, that was the next right choice for me. And, How old were you now? And I reckon, oh man, that's a funny question. I don't know. Maybe 21. Maybe, no, nah, maybe even, maybe 24. Industry eleven years. Yeah. So I yeah, about twenty three I suppose, because I did a year that and then I was fifteen. Yeah. Somewhere around twenty three. Yeah. <laughs> um Yeah. And you know, at twenty three I really thought I needed to have my whole life worked out. <laughs> I wanted to be married by twenty six and yeah. um yeah, just that's fucking funny how like why? Why do we need it all worked out at such a young age? Yeah. Like, where did I get that in my head? Yeah. That was really a burden of mine that I carried. And, Society, know, brother. If anyone's got that burden, just attach it to life's better without it. <laughs> yeah, damn straight. Let it happen. 
So I do so my So much easier when you're in flow, bro. <laughs> so much better in flow. Just let it go. Life's got a good plan for you. Trust in like trust in your feelings. Trust in what what feels good and what feels right. And if it is good for you and it is good for others, um, then I think that's that's right. That's the right thing. If it's not good for others and it's not good for you, then then that's probably not the way to go. Yeah, even right. if it feels good, even if it's like fucking shit hot time, but it's not good for others, it's probably not your purpose in life. But um, if it feels good, it's good for you and it's good for others. And I think that um, it's worth it's worth yeah. going down that, that track. Yeah, you're definitely on a on a good thing there. Once you find that connection, so you done your PT. So I did my PT course and it was a fucking breeze. I was like. Holy shit, I've spent the last 10 years um, of my life doing it. Um, learning this toolkit of stuff that I can give to people. Mm. And this entire PT course is so boring, I know all the answers already. Mm. And I knew everything pretty much except the um, bones and the anatomy, which was, I think, chapter one. Yeah. Um, out of the entire course. And, and I, I found it boring to the point where I was drinking red wine. Sitting in my beanbag doing the lectures. <laughs> yes. Um, so that was cool, you know, because when I first got into um, my role as a PT, um, the first place I went to, uh, Good Life in Point Cook, uh, which was Phoenix in Point Cook back then, um, I met the um, trainer manager and they had a thousand members. It was this really small gym. They had 26 personal trainers. I was one of them. And it was $250 rent a week. And I was like, fuck. And they, and they really wanted me. And I thought that they really wanted me because of me being fantastic for their gym. And maybe they did. But also, they really wanted me because I was someone that could add 26 grand or 13 grand a year to their, yeah. their profit. Yeah, yeah. Because um, little did I know was that... Um, Six trainers every three months were out, and they still had to pay their term contract. Um, and every year, they would lose um, 13 to 20 out of their 26 trainers. So it was a massive turnover. Good turnover. Um, but anyway, I gave it a crack, and the way that this guy put it was, if you're any good, um, by midday Monday morning, you'll have paid off your rent that you owe and everything after that will be profit. So I was like, fuck it, let's give it a go. And um, I met some of the most um, incredible people there. I met my uh, one of my good mates and mentors, Matt Lavaz, who got into it just, uh, I think, three years or two years before me. And yeah. he built up a great client base. He built up a sales structure. Um, he built up a toolkit and a self-confidence in how to operate a personal training business mm -hmm. and we formulated very quickly a friendship and a um, like a almost like a BBI or a mastermind we called it yeah. a group of people where every Monday morning we would meet and talk about personal development self-help business development where we're headed in our purpose how our business is supporting that purpose and anything that came up in the week that was going to be um, something to focus on as growth and 
something that worked out really, really well. So I met um, this guy called Troy, a guy called Steve, and a guy called Brett. Yeah. Every Monday, um, just about without fail, all five of us would be there, and we would grow. Yeah. Share. Love it. And then I would bring that growth back to the personal training clients. Yeah. And you know, um, all of the people, all of the trainers that were falling off the wagon every three months. Their clients were very quickly working out that um, this guy, Tristan Enright, had some value and his clients were getting results yeah. and we want to go and do what yeah. he's doing. We want a bit of that. We want a bit of that. Yeah. And also I learned very quickly that um, I didn't want to work 40 hours a week. I wanted to work 20 hours a week with my clients, 10 hours a week on myself. Yeah. Because the good ones were working 40 hours a week forgetting about themselves, starting to look unhealthy, and starting to not like their job. Like, they actually, within three years, they wanted to leave. Yeah. They were hating their job. Yeah. I wanted to be the one who was thriving and enjoying their job. And that was probably the first time I worked out that I wanted a business that supported a lifestyle, and I wanted to have a job where I could kick ass, but I could have a good time as well. Yeah. Um, so that's what I did. You know, I had but, um, 20 sessions a week. Yep. I was charging 60 bucks a half hour and 80 bucks and 40 minutes. Yep. And I was really helping people to change um, for a good period of 6 or 12 months. And then I realized that it just wasn't enough because people needed deeper change. Yeah. People needed more time with me than just physical fitness time. And the reason why they weren't changing was actually deeper than that. It was on the emotional level. Oh, yeah. and some of this stuff that I've been learning in the self-help industry, I didn't have time to sit down and do that work with them yeah. in a half-hour session when they wanted to be flogged. Yeah. Oh, people love to be flogged. And also, I didn't feel like I had it quite worked out yet myself. Yeah. Like, I'd read pretty much every book in the self-help industry there was that existed. I'd done Tony Robbins' um, Seven Days of Person Powers bonus program. I'd been to John D. Martini's courses. I spent fucking every waking hour listening to these YouTube clips and videos and whatever you could get access to um, about creating a good life and working through negative beliefs and all of this stuff. But I really didn't feel like I had it worked out yet. Um, so... Matt Lavaz uh, was transitioning this other PT that was in our mastermind I spoke of. He was in the middle of transitioning to becoming a life coach. Yep. And he had studied at um, this, uh, the Coaching Institute. And they had a program um, with neuro-linguistic neuro programming that sounded really along the line with, with what Tony Robbins had um, I think I looked, I looked into that one time. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. I was like, oh, I just wasn't quite ready to go down that path yet. Yeah. When I looked into it, yeah, yeah. So they were doing some really good stuff. Yeah, they had a really fucking good model, and they—it was the first time for me when I really felt like there was a company that existed in the mindset world that was really consistent with what I felt as a tennis player. Of 14, 15, 16, 17 at Melbourne Institute of um, sorry, Melbourne Institute of 
tennis. Yeah. School. School. Mets. It was called Mets. Mets. I don't know why I can't remember that acronym, but who cares? So Mets was just the incredible foundation where we were looking at, um, we were looking at our mindset, we were looking at our emotions, we were looking at our technique, we were yeah. looking at our tactical strategies, and they were bringing in experts talking about the psychology of tennis, the psychology of a human being and how it all interconnects. So the coaching institute was the first time where I really felt like, wow, this is a business or a company yeah. that really cares about the totality of the human. Yeah. I think that's where I need to be to be coaching yeah. what I need to be coaching to create even better results. Awesome. And also, I'm not getting the impact that I would be getting. Like, this is not satisfying enough. Yeah. yeah, just training people on that physical level. Like, it's all well and good, but um, you just know, just through all the work that you probably did yourself, and, um, you know, that, yeah, it's just the physical, it's just one part of it. Yeah. And if you want true results, yes. you got to go deeper. Yeah. you gotta, you got to look at the stuff that's holding you back. you got to look at the really? stuff that's, you know, why are you blaming others? Why are you not taking responsibility? What is going on? It's coming from something yeah. um, that you haven't accepted, you haven't worked through, and you haven't learned. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I mean, that's that's basically what I was where I was going. Perfect. So you became a personal trainer. So I became a PT. I did that for for two years. Yeah. And I had this awesome group of people that I was doing this mindset work with, and I had this. Matt Lamar's, who felt like he was just one step ahead of me yep. in my journey all the time. I yep. felt like, wow, like this is awesome. I've got this guy, and I'm, you know, I've got all these people feeding me clients, and then I find this thing, CrossFit. Oh, CrossFit. And it's like, wow, here's this 200-page philosophy on movement and training, and I feel like instantly that this is the reason why I didn't make it as a player. Yeah. Because I feel like all the reasons in which my body broke down was because I didn't have this journal of how to take care of my body. Yeah. And I go down this rabbit hole of um, CrossFit education and I realized that to run a CrossFit business you need to work with groups yeah um, and I'm already I'm aware that I'm not making enough impact one on one so I think let's make a greater impact by doing groups yeah so I tell all my clients that I'm going to start moving them towards two on ones I tell all my clients I'm going to start running boot camps on Monday and I take up this philosophy course um, on a Wednesday night because one of my clients said you're going to really love philosophy you're talking about all this mindset stuff, I reckon you would love it. So I go to this philosophy course with my dad, I drag him along. He's been doing it now for 10 years. Yeah, he's loving it. He's loving it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just want to hold that. Isn't that amazing though, you, that you and your dad have gone on this journey together of self-development? So cool. Amazing. So cool. Okay. Oh, yeah. That's, and, it's, that's... and it's a little bit different, Yeah. but it's the same, and we get to bounce off each other, Yeah. and it's something that's you know, we both get to cry through it. It's so fucking cool. Yeah, that is amazing. I love that. And, I love that. And my dad helps me to cry. He cries more than, yeah. more than anyone. And so did my grandpa. He's hard Catholic from uh, <laughs> Scottish Irish. Yeah. Catholic, yeah. 
Brian. Yeah. yeah, love it, love it. So cool. Yeah. Yeah, so you got your, um, you've gone to this philosophy course? So I go, I start philosophy on a Wednesday night, and by week 10, uh, with consistent um, meditations at the start and at the end of every session, on the 10th session, I get this, my first, I guess, um, calling, my first vision. Um, and it's a vision to start a Wednesday night boot camp at Cherry Lake. Um, and I trust that. And Wednesday night was when philosophy was. So I let go of philosophy and I start running Wednesday night boot camps, which becomes a growing success. And all of a sudden I start meeting more and more people that start to give ideas and, um, and tools and concepts that help me to bring this CrossFit 3018 to life. In fact, one of my first clients, um, his old man um, was in the middle of building a factory and that was the factory that I then took all my clients into. Got to rent off him and he helped me to um, generate more interest, more awareness and really he held my hand to open up this CrossFit 318 and make it a success. The world works in beautiful ways when you trust it and you Some of these things were really my first time um, on a career level because it was happening on a play level with yeah. a family yeah. and with fun um, and with my best mate. Um, but it was really the first time that I was feeling this flowing career. Yeah, I love it. Sick. So CrossFit 3018 was a fucking um, amazing challenge for me. Yep. I had to be, I had to overcome myself. I had to get out of the way of myself over and over again. Like just the simple fact that the bond on the building was seven and a half grand. That was just like wow. Oh. I, I was okay with two hundred and sixty a week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now it's a seven and a half k bond. Yeah. And it's also two and a half grand a month. Yeah. Um, so before I even opened up that gym, I was sitting having a picnic with my wife. My wife, yeah. Um, Jill, and, and I just burst out into tears, and I was like, fuck, like, this is what I am going to do in my life. This is the next thing for me. Yeah. Um, is it okay if I spend all our hard earned money? Like, um, not all of it, but yeah. not being all of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, is it okay if I go down this journey and spend our money? Um, because we'd actually, we'd actually created a house deposit. Yeah. Worked our guts out, I left out because I forgot about it and I was concreted for a year and a half. And there was a time where I basically put away um, passion and joy in a career and just went, I'm going to just fucking earn two grand a week. No, not two grand, it's 1100, 1400 yeah. in that range a yeah. week. Um, Tough work, to that's it. To just, yeah, yeah, just, you know, to beat up on my body. And that was actually the wake up call where I wanted to be a personal trainer because. There was this fucking big dude there, also studying at the Australian Institute of yeah, Fitness, yeah, yeah. and he had cancer and he had a fucking um, um, tumor in his brain in, in his head. Yeah. And he had that tumor cut out, and he had a tube put in his head, and he said he remembers them. there was three of them with their foot on his head, holding this fucking tube, trying to yank it out of his head because he was such a fast healer. His, oh. his skull healed against this tube. <laughs> 
couldn't get that fucking thing out. Yeah. He had three motherfuckers pulling this thing out with their foot on his head. Yeah. And he said, you know, if I land aiming, it's go and do what you're meant to do. Yeah, and that dude. shook me like a fucking Hell small yeah. boat in the ocean yeah. to say, I need to go and be a personal trainer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it. you know, shit, shit just started falling in place. And, and I just started coming against these hurdles. And one, one of the next big hurdles was that I felt like I needed to be a part of the coaching institute because I felt like there was so much of me that I needed to overcome to be a, a better man for our community yep. so that I could serve the needs of the people that were in front of me. So um, that was the next thing. Okay, babe, um, is it okay if I spend more of our house deposit, 15 grand, yeah. on taking this um, education to the next level and being a better man? It means I'm going to be a better man for the people. It means I'm going to be a better success in my business and it means I'm going to be a better man for you as a partner and as a husband yeah. and, um, and she said yes again and um, the next 12 months I basically dedicated my life to creating this business because I put all of this money into it oh. um, and to becoming the best version of me I can and, and I send this basically practically broke I think we ended up with four grand in our bank um, from 80 grand to 4 grand. Yeah. We had this gym that wasn't thriving. I had no structure um, financially. We were just spending money. And I had a lot of tools, but I just wasn't implementing any of them. I yeah. was just like a rabbit on the fucking um, treadmill. Yeah. Is it a rabbit or a rat? Like a rat on the oh, treadmill. Yeah. The rat race. Like a rat on the re- wheelie sp- spinny yeah, wheel. The, yeah, the treadmill. Um, and, and I reached, I cried and Right, and said to her, babe, I need your help. You know, you are the queen of structure. I'm fucking our life up for us. Can you sort out our finances? Yep. And I will I will live them to a T. Yep. And um, she got our shit back together and it took us the next ten years to get our house deposit back. <laughs> yeah. You got it, you've moved into the ninth hour. Um and again, you know, that you owning up going, look. You know, I'm not good at that, which which is tough and amazing that you did it. And I think, you know, part of it and was... getting the right people in at the right... Part of it was just that I loved her so much and I, and I love her so much that, you know, I didn't want to let her down. I didn't want to go for us. Like, I want better for her and I want better for us. So, yeah. you know, it's, when you have a bigger reason for... Um, life than yourself. Yeah, you're um, team, You eh? will do anything to, to step up. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes we do feel like losers, we feel like failures, and we don't feel good enough. And that's okay. And what actually will get us um, beyond that is to look for things that we love in our life, look for people that matter more to us in our life than ourselves, and then and do it for them until we become important enough to do it for ourselves. Yeah. yeah. I was, I was lucky because I just had like, so many people in my life that, that mattered to me more than I mattered to myself. Yeah. Beautiful. She's that rock, isn't she, eh? Yeah, she's my one man. She's yeah. my rock. Yeah. yeah. So I tell you, she turned the gym around then. So, yeah, yeah. We turned our finances around and she, um, 
she she turned my life around fucking over and over again. Yeah. Um, she taught me how to love. She taught me how to be soft and be gentle and laugh and connect and um, everything that I did in personal development. Um, for, for the largest part of my life was for her because I didn't know how to value myself. Yeah. I valued her. Yeah. Jules Bergermeister, and he 
changed and revolutionized my whole way of training because CrossFit allowed me to um, feed the fucking beast in me that was selfish and wanted to be competitive and needed to be the best. And, you know, in CrossFit, I decided that I was going to be the best um, athlete, I could be the best leader, I could be run the best gym that could possibly exist. Yeah. And I was just feeding this beast. Um, and Jules really was the first one that, um, as a coach, that influenced me to bring softness to my training, bring softness back to my life, yeah. uh, bring softness back to my relationship with Jill, connect back in with my family. Um, and I cried with him and I cried with him. When I went for training and I cried with him. Yeah. Went there heavy and I came back alive. Yeah. I was like, wow, like, I need to change. Yeah. Um, and I need to bring this to my community and help me to do that. Um, and when COVID hit, it was a beautiful time that so much change had happened with me that um, Jill and I had talked about moving to Queensland for such a long time. I never ever felt like I could leave Melbourne. Yeah. Like, I felt so much connection to mum and dad, to my friends, to my family, to my extended family, and I just, I didn't want to leave, because I didn't really know myself, and they was, those people and that stuff was how I knew myself, so I was scared to leave as well, Um, but all it took was Jill coming downstairs crying, um, saying, with fear in in her heart, like, they, I'm not sure if they're going to close the borders on us and that we're never going to get to Queensland. Yeah. When are we going to live our dream? Um, and, and she was just so scared. And I just knew my role as a man, as a partner, yeah. as her lover and soulmate, that the decision was we move and we move as fast as we can. Oh, man, it's going to be goosebumps. <laughs> I love it. And, and I said to her, we're going to move and we're going to do it in two weeks. And... And then she freaked out and had all the anxiety herself. As like, you do. Fuck, how the fuck are we going to pull this whole house to clean? Uh, house to empty and all that stuff. And, you know, I think we just looked each other in the eyes and we just knew that, like, we got to do this for ourselves, for our relationship for each other. And, um, you know, we put in the bullet and we moved to Queensland. And it was at a time where, like, no one could get a rental. There were 80 applications on every house within a day of it hitting the market. But it was just, the, it was the right move for us. Yeah. And, um, you know, don't get me wrong, I didn't just ring up the first one and it happened. But I rang up some agents, I asked them, what is the reality of getting a rental property right now? How hard is it? Yeah. What are the successful ones doing? And I just used my years of knowledge and we created a fucking awesome resume for our dogs, Jill did, and had photos and behaviours about them. Um, we, I made a relationship with the agent straight away. Um, I looked at the houses as they dropped, the minute they dropped, and made an um, inquiry by phone, and then dropped the um, application within five minutes of being on the phone, and then called them back an hour later to see that they got it. And yeah, within basically three days, we had a property, and within 14 days, we moved to Queensland. So it manifested, and it will happen. We landed in the coolest place on earth. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Sunny coast. Sunny coast. Cool on the beach. Cool on the beach. 
It's uh, good. And uh, I got to be a man for my woman again. Yeah. Stepping up. Been hard. That's that's been a true warrior there. That's been a man being soft and you know crying and stuff is is good. But when the time was to step up and and be that man that you needed to be for your woman, yeah. you did it. You know, going out on the weekend and having a fight, not being tough and being a man. It's just being a little boy. Yeah. You know. You know, I was, you know, I, um, I was scared. I was scared to oh, leave my family. Yep. Because I didn't want my mum and dad to think that I didn't love them. And I didn't want my sister to feel like I didn't love her. Like that they weren't important enough. Like originally, I didn't want to move away from my friends. I didn't want to lose my identity with my gym and my importance. But you know, you gotta. I had to let go of all that stuff and be curious about what can I learn here. You know, I gotta learn how to do this. I'm gonna find myself. Who's waiting up at Coolum Beach for me? Yeah. And you know, I always wanted to be a professional tennis player and I, the one thing that I really feel like that I missed out on that was that wasn't there for me was actually travelling the world and yeah. being away. Like I've always felt that there was something in the way that was really gonna help full circle. And um, and now I'm doing that and it, and it does feel like I really needed to do this and get away. There you are, yeah, it's perfect time to wrap that up. Look at that. Love it, bro. Thank you for sharing your story and letting people know who you are, the the real you and and what you've been through and the lessons that you've made. And um, I think there's more. Oh. But I don't think we can do it. Oh, no, no, no. I don't think we can do it. That's like all all our stories, man. And and the best thing is that if you want to learn more off us, um, we do have a 12-week program where we put all our knowledge and our tools together um, and help you start your journey, whether whether that is you're a young man, a woman, or you're older and you, you still feel lost and stuff like that. Um, there's a way, there's always time to start. Start uh, living the dream, living your dream, not our dream, but your, your dream. Truth, yeah. Yep, your truth. Um, and we can help facilitate that. And also, um, we're going to start interviewing and or doing these podcasts with other people, and you know, I think the cool thing is that we'll, um, we'll share more and more about how we relate and, and how our stories connect in with theirs, and um, and hopefully that just brings up more ideas and insights and enthusiasm in you. And you know, I really hope that you guys connected with something today. And if you see me around, or if you want to drop a drop a comment or drop a question or DM me, then and do it. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear more about you. Yeah, love it. All right. Thanks, Will, for having me, mate. No Appreciate worries, brother. Appreciate you having the space. Awesome. No, nah, thanks for sharing. It's, uh, it is hard, and uh, we love it. All right. Love and help. See ya. Peace out. You. Yeah, and then we uh, cut yeah, that out. Yeah. Cut that later.